Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to First Chronicles, and that's on page 410, First Chronicles 16, 23 through 31. And I want to say a little bit about this passage this morning. Uh, it's actually part of what happens in the scriptures is recycling, which is a good thing, right? We love recycling. We have the blue bins, you know, the gray bins. The, we're pretty soon we're going to have like seven bins, each one for a different element of the periodic table, like that you could just, it's crazy. But I'll give you an example. The Bible recycles some of its text in other parts of the Bible. So one example is that Jeremiah chapter 52 is more or less identical to 2 Kings chapter 25. You can look it up later. It's kind of fun. Make, make a note of it. But it's the same story. It's the story of what happens at the, at the very end, what happens to some of the last kings. Um, this chapter, the section that we're going to be looking at today, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, is very much the same as 2 Samuel chapter 6, which we actually preached on about six weeks ago. It was about how the ark returned to Jerusalem and how David was dancing in front of it with this great joy. And this particular passage that we're going to be looking at today, which is verses 23, and actually if you go through verse 33, is identical to Psalm 96. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's, there's just these parts of Scripture that just get retold or reused almost verbatim, word for word. In fact, verse 29 of this passage, which we're going to focus on today, is identical to Psalm 29.2, and it's also identical to Psalm 96.9. Now, you don't have to remember all that, but this phrase is a, a common phrase. And it's a sign that actually the Bible is a collection of books. And so the people who write it remember, oh, yes, there's that story about the last kings. Let's put it at the end of Jeremiah because that kind of finishes the story. Or it shows that when David was worshiping as the ark was coming back into Jerusalem, or coming and not back, it was actually coming to Jerusalem, they said, well, where's our psalm book? And they went and they found the scroll or the clay tablet, as it may have been, and they said, let's read Psalm 96 when the ark comes in to the city gates, because that's the way we can worship this wonderful event. And so uh, that's some of the background of our story, is that David has brought the ark into Jerusalem, and this anticipation for the temple eventually going to be built around it, although David does not have an opportunity to do that. Only his son Solomon can do that. But this is, the context is that this is a time of joy, this is a time of celebration, this is a time of worship. People are really excited, and nobody's more excited than King David. And we, we heard about this a while back. He had stripped almost all of his clothing off, which sounds strange to us, but yet he did. Actually, it was strange at that time too. And he was dancing in front of the ark in this holy fervor. He was so excited that the presence of God was coming into the city of Jerusalem. And his wife didn't like it. You know, she looked out the window and saw him dancing around, and she says, you've really humiliated yourself. And he says, I'm not even done humiliating myself. I've, I've yet more humiliation to do. It's coming. Just watch. So they used, David made some preparations before the ark came back into Jerusalem. He got a bunch of supplies, like food and cake and things like that, and he gave those to all the people of the city so that they could celebrate and worship. 
And he actually planned out a worship ceremony for when the ark came in the gates, including Psalm 96, which we're going to read is actually inside 1 Chronicles, but also all sorts of other things like playing music and arranging for musicians to play certain kinds of music in certain times. So this was a real production, if you want to use that word. The ark coming into Jerusalem was this huge festive event, and they used the scriptures as a part of one of the way of celebrating it. So for me, I like it because it's, it's good to see that the Psalms weren't just sitting somewhere. Like, oh yeah, those are the Psalms. And they weren't all written yet because David still had a few more to write and there were some that were written after David and after Solomon. But they had a collection and it didn't just sit on a shelf somewhere. They said, here's our hymns. Here are our poems. Here are our songs of praise to God. We're going to use them in our worship as the ark comes in. So that's kind of the background. And so I want you to imagine, I'm going to read, but I want you to imagine that you're hearing this along with a thousand other people watching this golden box with two angels facing each other and a tiny chair on it that represented the presence of God. That's the ark. That it was being carried slowly and reverently into Jerusalem, and all that reverence was sort of offset by David dancing like a madman in his underwear in front of it, okay? Just imagine, all right? So this is fun. So this is 1 Chronicles 23, uh, 16, 23 through 31. Thank you, Dale. Bless you. Have a good wedding. All right, here we go. Verse 23, sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for this word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look in your Bible, and you know there's a whole bunch of verses there, but I'm really only going to focus on one verse and only half of that verse. So find verse 29. And then look at the second half of it. That's all we're going to talk about. Isn't that great? Nice, simple, right? We'll be done in five minutes. I promise. No, we won't. But this is what it says. This is the second half of verse 29. It says this. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And just think about it for a second. Because it's a bit cryptic. It's incredibly beautiful. What does it mean? Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. I love it. 
it caught my eye. And it's caught my eye many times before. And it's, as I said, you can find it in two other places in the Psalms. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And this is the only time in this passage that the word worship is used. Did you, maybe you didn't notice that. But if you look at the other verses, you have all sorts of other imperatives, things that you are told to do. Worship is one of the imperatives. You should do something. Verse 23 says you should sing. Verse 24 says you should declare. Verse 25 says you should fear. Verse 28 and verse 29, the first half say that you should ascribe, which means you should give. You should give God glory. Verse 29 says, uh, the first half says you should bring something. And verse 30 says that you should tremble. All sorts of things that you should be doing as the ark comes in to Jerusalem. But only the second half of verse 29 has that verb worship. And I want to talk about that because what does it mean to worship, right? The Hebrew word for this is hishtahawah, the imperative form of the word for worship. And it means to bow down. That's what it actually means, literally. It means to bow down. This is when, when it was said that people were worshiping things, they actually would get on their knees and kneel. I'll do it right now just so we can visualize it. And they would be on their knees, their knees and their toes would be touching the ground and they would bow all the way down so that their face would actually then touch the floor. That's what that word means literally. And if you could... You could translate it several ways. Bow down, to bow in homage is one way of translating it. To kneel down or even to fall down. This word is used to fall down. And there's also warnings about what not to do with this word. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4, God says, Do not worship or do not bow down before the stars and the heavens. Because those are false idols. Only God is truly God. Just give me a second here while I adjust this, because it's, I think if I put it lower, it will probably be better. How's that? Can you all hear me? Okay. I should have done that earlier. It felt, it felt okay, but it wasn't really working out. All right. So, worship means to bow down. But you could still ask, what does that mean, though? Does that, should we... I mean, we're worshiping this morning. Uh, you're all sitting upright. I'm standing upright. I haven't seen anyone in this church actually bow down to the floor and touch the carpet with their face. I haven't seen that happen yet. Do we literally have to do that to worship God? No. No, there's many ways to worship, right? And really, it's a more of a figurative thing. Let me put it this way. Um, if, but don't let me, let me put it this way. You may, you may worship God by physically bowing down. And you might want to. You might want to try that sometime. Not, not, not today, I mean. It's okay. Not today. But, but someday. Maybe at home. By the side of your bed, you could get on your knees. And you could bow down. And you could do it there. It's kind of a showy thing. So Jesus might say, that's something you should ought to, maybe you should ought to do it in private. You know? Unless we were all to do it. All right. So, one thing that this means, and this is something that people would do before a king or a chieftain or a ruler or somebody like that, is almost to say, I give up. 
To bow down means I give up. And, and what I, when I say I give up, it means I'm not in charge here. I walk into the king's throne room, I bow down, and that's me saying to the king and everybody else who's there, his court, and probably most importantly to myself, that I'm not the king. The king's up there on the throne. I am not in charge here, and I'm showing that I'm not in charge here by worshiping, by bowing down. And I think that's what worship is on some level for us, too. If I'm in the presence of the Lord, I'm not the Lord. I'm his subject. I'm the king's subject. I'll do what I'm asked to do. The king will protect me. The king will love me. The king will take care of me. But I'm not the king. I give up. I surrender. I come to the king in humility. I come to the king in submission, which is not a very popular concept in America, is it? We don't like submitting to anybody or anything. That's not us. But that's what's called for us to do when we have this encounter with God. We worship. And to worship means to bow down, to say, I give up. I'm not in charge. You're in charge. And so I wonder what it would like be like, and I've been trying to do it this morning, honestly, because I've been thinking about this, is what if I came to worship with that frame of mind? If I came into worship not expecting to get something, although I often do, but expecting to give up everything, what would happen? What if I came into worship saying, I give up. I'm not in charge. I'm here. I'm here to do what you have to do. Well, it's something to think about. So we could worship the Lord, worship the Lord, and the splendor of his holiness. Now, I want to go on to the, the second part of the second half, the second half of verse 29. And it says this, in the splendor of his holiness. Isn't that a beautiful turn of phrase? They're not, not all the Bible translations have it exactly that way. Uh, the, the word splendor is from the Hebrew word hadar. It means majesty or splendor or adornment. Adornment, we'll get to that in a second. Now here's some of the, diff- there's some differences between translations, okay? Some of them have worship the Lord in his holy hall. Some have worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. I like that. Or there's a slightly different translation that's similar to ours today. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. And finally, several, including like the Holman Bible, which some of you may have, and the Net Bible, say, worship the Lord in holy attire. Holy attire? I'm going to see how awake you are now, okay? Do you know what holy attire is? That's like when Italian person has a flat on their car, and they say, I have a holy attire, I needed a fix, and a patch, and a... No, okay, you're awake, yay! Okay, holy attire is not a flat on your car. Holy attire is holy clothing. My wife is nodding her head. I, I did this on purpose to see who's awake. You're all awake, good. Holy clothing. And actually, I prefer this translation, and, and the commentators I've read prefer this Translation, because that's what the word means. It means adornment. It means actually clothing. It often refers to clothing in other parts of the Old Testament. Worship 
the God, the God, the Lord, in holy clothing. Oh. Bow down before God and put on your clothes that honor his holiness. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean, again, should you dress up for church? Eh, you can. You can overdress for church. You can underdress for church. You can come to this church any way you want, honestly. We won't, we won't really care. This is California. This is the West Coast, you know. Every, every Sunday is casual Sunday here. But if you dress up because you feel like you want to honor, that's a good thing. That is very good, you know. But you could also come before the Lord like David, but please don't do that, you know, here. <laughs> I mean, there are some limits. Because is this really about what we wear, you know? Um, think about David. He was before the Lord, marching in front of the ark with basically just his underwear on, dancing like a madman. And, and that could tell us something. That it's not what he's wearing or, or not wearing, actually, for that matter. It's the spiritual fervor that he's taken with as he worships. That is his clothing. That is his holy attire. It's what's on him. We're going to get into this. Um, and this is what he says to his wife. He says, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord and I will humble myself even more and humiliate myself. That sounds like an act of worship, doesn't it? That actually sounds like David saying, I know this looks humiliating, but it doesn't matter because I give up. I'm taken with what the Lord is putting upon me, and this is my act of worship, no matter what it looks like to anyone else. So he's aware that his dancing is strange to other people, but he does it for the Lord. He humiliates himself in front of, his, in front of the Lord. That's worship for him. And that's the holy attire for him is physically not much, but spiritually his holy attire is incredible. Now, here's something I want you to think about, because this is something that you could be thinking about when you read the Bible in the future, that the scriptures actually pay a fair amount of attention to how people are dressed. Think back over the scriptures now. You may notice a few things. Like there's often mention made of how particular people are dressed, and you may wonder why that is. It's actually an important element of storytelling, it's an important element of the narrative. It's important, but it also has a huge theological importance in the scriptures. So you may have noticed, like, for example, first there were no clothes, right? But then God made clothes for people to protect them. When people mourn in the Bible, they change their clothes. And when they stop mourning, they put on new clothes. The clothes that John the Baptist was wearing is mentioned specifically. Why? Well, it tells us something about him, right? And there's the clothing of angels, how they look, how is Jesus, what do Jesus' clothes look on the Mount of the Transfiguration? All this is very kind of mentioned in the Bible. So clothing, which is this outward part of what people say, see, is actually related to what's going on inside as well. And there's also a symbolic aspect or a metaphorical aspect when the Bible talks about clothing. It's... This metaphor is that we, when we put on clothing of some kind, 
we're taking on the attributes of that clothing. We're taking on the quality of that clothing. And I'll give you an example. Romans 13. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. What? Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Can we be clothed with the splendor of Jesus? Yeah. Paul says so. Luke 24, Jesus is addressing his disciples. He says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Wow. Can we be clothed with the splendor of the Spirit's power? Yeah, we can. Isaiah 61, one more. It says this, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Can we be clothed with righteousness? Can we be clothed with salvation? Yeah, we can. So when we worship, when we bow down, can we be clothed with the splendor of God's holiness? Yeah, we can. Absolutely, and we are. We take on that thing which we put on. We receive holiness and salvation and righteousness and the power of the Spirit and even Christ when we worship. This is part of what worship is. It's not just that we bow down and we say we give up, but that, in essence, God begins to clothe us as we are in the presence of his holiness. He clothes us with his holiness, the beauty of it, the splendor of it. I think that's amazing. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3. We have all these things. He writes, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Well, there's a lot more to say about worship, but this is enough for one day. We, we can't do it all in one day. But I want to tell you this, just Take this idea home with you, okay? When you're worshiping, when you are worshiping at home or here, whether you're dancing in a holy fervor and you don't care what other people think, and I hope you do, or if you're praying in the privacy of your own home or you're reading the scriptures and you're touching the heart of God when you do it, or even when you come here to this place, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, and you are given this cloak, this garment, this royal robe, and you put it on, and you have all things. Let's pray. Father, we come to worship you today. We come to worship you in holy splendor. We bow down before you and we receive from you all that you have. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.